good. Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning news producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Terry Cross Davis, the author of the poetry collection, A More Perfect Union, out now from Mad Creek Books, an imprint of Ohio State University Press. Terry Ellen Cross Davis is the author of A More Perfect Union, winner of the 2019 journal Charles B. Wheeler Poetry Prize, and Haint, winner of the 2017 Ohioana Book Award for Poetry. She is the 2020 winner of the Poetry Society of America's Robert H. Winner Memorial Award and a finalist for the PSA's George Bogan Memorial Award. She is the recipient of a 2019 Sustainable Arts Grant and a Murray Grant from the Freya Project. A Cave Conum Fellow, she has been awarded residencies at the Community of Writers Workshop Hedgebrook, the Soul Mountain Writers Retreat, the Virginia Center for Creative Arts and the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. She is on the advisory council of Split This Rock, a biennial poetry festival in Washington, D.C., a semifinalist and finalist judge for the National Endowment for the Arts Poetry Out Loud, and a member of the Black Ladies Brunch Collective. Terry's work has been published in numerous anthologies, and she currently serves as the poetry coordinator for the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. She lives in Maryland with her husband, poet Hayes Davis, and their two children. In this conversation, we discuss what it's like for Terry to be married to another creative, how parenting, motherhood, and the purple one himself, Prince, influence her work and why she says her poems are singing songs for Black women who have no chorus. Black and published family, let's welcome Terry to the show. All right, so um, I guess we should get into this. Terry, <laughs> thank you for joining me today on Black and Published. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. No problem. And so I always like to start the podcast off by asking, when did you know that you were a writer? Oh, I would say by third grade, by by the time I was eight, I wrote my first poem. And at that point, my Barbies had all been magazine journalists. So that gave me some indication that I knew I wanted to write. I just uh, didn't have the confidence to make them poets. Um, but eventually I, I grew that confidence and became one. So, And how did you grow that confidence? It was a matter, a mixture of things. It was Cave Canem in 1999 helped a lot. Um, just to be there and be around other Black poets and realize, oh my gosh, these are my people. Um, so this is why I've been so weird all my life. <laughs> it's because I'm a poet. Um, so that helped a, a tremendous amount. And it was also 1999, I had my first poem published. Um, thanks to Tony Mel- Tony Medina. Uh, so those two things, and all of a sudden that began like my publishing career, and, and that helped a lot. Um, but I knew, I, I think I knew even in undergrad when I started writing poetry plays and performing and running a poetry series out of a coffee shop on campus, <laughs> I think I knew, always knew, but I couldn't claim it until 99. 
Okay, so in the time between undergrad when you were running these poetry plays in the coffee shops and doing all things poetic but not yet claiming it, what did you do in the interim? I was an undergrad, my major in undergrad was in journalism, was in magazine journalism. And uh, so, you know, just learning more about the craft of writing, but with a very kind of more objective view and objective eye as one, you know, as you know, requires in journalism. Um, and that's what I was doing and learning more about myself. I was doing a lot of self-exploration in terms of just reading books recognizing that there was trauma I had as a dark-skinned girl and how to work with that, how to recognize it and just stop those barriers from keeping me from growing. Um, so I was doing a lot of self-work. I'm, I'm big on reading. I'm big on questioning the status quo. So did you ever make the transition from your work as a magazine journalist into full-time poet, literary artists or are you still balancing both because you've been published a lot and it's been a long time since 1999 <laughs> uh, I've made I've made the transition into kind of full-on in the literary career in the literary field I run a poetry series and that's my full-time job is to run a poetry series for the Folger Shakespeare Library and I've been there for 15 years and I was able to make that transition because I was actually a um, a talk show radio producer for five years before before that. So what you're saying um, is you should be the host of Black and Published. <laughs> you should oh, be no on this side. <laughs> by no means. I do miss talk radio producing just because all the magazines I would have to read the conversations and I always felt like talk radio show producers are like the best dinner guests because they know so much about so many different things. And I miss that. I miss being up on every little thing and like having the scoop before everyone else had it. Um, so I do miss that aspect of it. But I love being in the poetry field. Um, a friend told me when I when I got this job, you know, you're going to have to love it. You're going to see the ugly side. You're going to see the pretty side. You're going to have to love it all. So being in it has helped me tremendously because it gives me an opportunity to read a lot of work. I was just reading um, an I, um, this Irish poet's work, and it's a bilingual work this morning, and then I have another poet's work on my mind to read this afternoon out of Cleveland. So it's like, you know, I get to have all of the things and all of the influence and all of the food to make my soul happy. So, so you're living yeah. your best life immersed in this literary world is what you're telling us. <laughs> I, I, I am. I cannot complain. I really cannot. It's so hard. <laughs> no one listens when I do. They play the tiniest violin. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to your um, experience in 99 at the Kaveh Khanum uh, Fellowship, which thank you for saying it correctly, because I always thought it was pronounced Cave Canum. I was like, oh, that's how you say that. <laughs> but how did how did that experience give you confidence as a poet to eventually go off and, and do this full time? Um, that first year at Kaveh Kahnem, I had a different workshop every day with various poets, including Sonia Sanchez, Michael Harper, Lucille Clifton. Uh, <laughs> so it was crazy. Um, and I got a chance to workshop with incredible poets um, like Ross Gay and Tayamba Jess, uh, Evie Shockley, all these are people who were there as fellows. Terrence Hayes was there that first year. 
um, as a working fellow. Uh, so it just to be among our Erica Doyle, it's like the list goes on, but to be among these incredible writers um, and feel as if I could have some perch that actually could get a, a, a toe into that door and, and be in the same room with them boosted my confidence a lot. Um, but then, and like I said, getting those publishing credits in 99, and it also helped that, like, my husband is, he was part of that first cohort of Cave Canon Fellows from when it first started in 96, 97, 98. He went those first three years. So at that time, we, he and I were dating. And so it was so nice to have somebody in my corner who who knew who Cornelia CD was <laughs> and that we could have these poetry conversations and we could um, go to readings together. So it really, like, to be immersed into it romantically and intellectually and physically it gave me the sense that this is what I've been doing all my life I knew I felt all the feelings all my life I've always had so many feelings and just so empathetic to so many different things and things I couldn't shake so I knew that poetry was my way to exercise all those demons um well not all of them but at least you know at least keep them on a leash as Hosher says um so so y'all were like the real life love jones you know, we <laughs> y'all were Darius and Nina before we before even had Darius a name for it. Yeah, exactly. And now, you know, married 20, this would be our 21st year of marriage and two kids later. And, you know, we're still doing all the things. Our first books came out together. I mean, yeah. So that's uh, the real deal. Plus, he's cute and I still like him. So congrats. Even in the quarantine? Even in the quarantine. He's in there making gingerbread pancakes and apples. What can I say? That's a good husband. My husband is at work. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a he's a first responder so I can't be Aww, mad. Yeah. Um wow, you talk about exercising your demons and you know using the art form to kind of immerse yourself immerse yourself in to address your traumas. How has poetry saved you? Oh my gosh. I don't know if I could be whole without it. Mm. Like there's a poem in Haint um, called Dear Diary, and it follows a story I read in Cleveland, which is where I was born and raised, 216. Um, and, <laughs> and I could not shake this story in 1998 when I read it in the newspapers in Cleveland. And it was just a very traumatic story of some basically tweens who gotten together, gotten pregnant, given birth, and that child ended up dying um, around 18 months old because they were you know, 12 and 13, and weren't really equipped to be parents. And I held that story and I held that kid's picture. Mm-hmm. I like cut it out and held it. And I think if I didn't have poetry, I wouldn't have been able to write Dear Diary and get it out and feel as if I could do something to address and acknowledge the, the ways that other people may think of as small things, but are huge boulders in the Black community. And so I think, who could I, you know, how would I be if I'd never written that poem? I don't think I'd be whole. I think I would have broken down by now. Hmm. There's so many things that have happened in my life that poetry gives me that outlet to say this happened. This was the emotional, intellectual response. But also here is this thing that happened from it. Here's this gleam of knowledge I, I acquired, whether it was through blood or through blossoms, I acquired it and I'm sharing it. And so if I had to hold all that in, I don't think I could go forward. I'd be too heavy, you know? I'd be too broken. 
And so poetry allows me to let these things out to, to heal and, and to share what I've learned, to share what I see, to share how I feel it um, and how it appears to me and why I think it's important mm-hmm. because it's, it's not just like my viewpoint on it. It's because somebody needed to tell that story of that little boy who was alive for 18 months and died because in so many ways, and I've gone back and forth over this, it was kind of almost like no one's fault, but everyone's fault. And, and that story needed to be heard. And so I feel like then, then maybe I'm the person who just tells that story. And that's, I'm fine with that too. Your experience sound reminds me of when Toni Morrison talked about reading the article about the slave who had killed her children and was trying to kill herself. And that was her inspiration for Beloved. Right. And Margaret, I think that slave's name was. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like so often, Black women especially, we turn to poetry as an outlet for our brokenness. Is it hard for you to write these poems in that space? Or is it is it just cathartic? It's a little bit of both. It's hard. There have been poems I've written where I've stood up and walked away from it and cried because I didn't know it was going to go there Hmm. and it hurt. And I forced myself to come back to it. As a matter of fact, there's, um, yeah, there's a, there's a a line in, I wrote this poem called let down about nursing my daughter. Um, I nursed both my children, my daughter for 18 months, my son for 25. Um, And in it, I realized as a working mom at the time, I had my like, I had my pump underneath my desk and I had access to a kitchen and the sink and all this and the refrigerator. But every time I would go to pump, I would feel this wave of sadness. And and I realized my mother told me, she was like, that's because you don't have your baby. You know, you're expressing this milk, but you don't have your baby and your body knows the difference. And that's kind of like how it is with with the poems. Like I but I, I had to stay and express that milk because and so I had to just be in that sadness and work through it because my baby needed that milk and I needed to work. And so these two things had to come together. So I have to do these poems because I have to stay there and I have to be the witness. And it, and it is cathartic after the pain happens and recedes. But it, it's, it's, it hurts in the middle of it because mm-hmm. I hurt for so many people that I don't even know I'm not hurt for them. And like I said, I've had, always had all the feelings. So I figured out that this is what I had all the feelings for, to be this poet. And with the work that you do now with the collective, it's like a theater collective, correct? Well, it's, we're, we're a poetry collective. Oh, a Black Ladies Brunch Collective. Yeah, we're just, we're just like, we were six. We're now five, five Black women poets who just come together. And initially, pre-pandemic, we were just coming together for drinks and talking, which is just the best. Um, but, and then we, we did this anthology together and then we realized like, we're, we're, you know, we're good at working together, even though our forms are all very disparate kind of forms of poetry, but they work together to just show the multidimensionality of black women in America, all the ways we can be. Um, Mm -hmm. so I was going to say at the, um, at the Folgers Shakespeare library, is that like a performative work of the poetry? Um, no, the series at the Folger is just a straight up kind of traditional poetry series. And so it's been around. We're now I'm now reading for the 53rd season. Um, so it's just a traditional series. We invite poets uh, any you know, like from 
basically the academic school year to come in and do a reading, sometimes a workshop. Um, and so that's that's pretty much it. And and the great thing about it is because it's been around for so long, I get to invite lots of poets and I get to follow poets and a lot of poets who are like heroes to me. I get to, you know, make that call and say, would you come? And even if they say no, like I did, um, I asked the poet I for so many times and we would just have these conversations. And she was like, no, Terry, I'm not getting on the plane. Um, but I'm like, but can, I, but can I still just talk to you? But can I just talk to you though? Because the killing floor, like for, for real. Um, like, I just need to talk to you. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah. So that's, and so, yeah, what I do, it's so funny because BLBC is kind of like separate. It's all me and my girls. And this is what we do. Um, and then there's what I do for work, you know? So I guess I asked because you talk about, you know, writing in the brokenness of it, but if you're reading these poems to an audience, large or small, is there another feeling that you get as like a release when you're reading or do you go right back into that space of brokenness and have to kind of relive it all over again to get it out? I, I, there's another feeling I get after I read it. I think, and then after I've read it so many times, I am thankful that that brokenness I experienced, which allowed for this growth, has now become a tender healing spot, right? And and some stuff, admittedly, some stuff I don't read in public that often, right? And I'm like nervous for anyone to ask me to read it. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I get so much from readings. Um, because it's nice to hear the response. It's nice to think that these words have found a mark and hit in the way that I they, they came out of me and hit. Mm. Um, so it's engaging and fulfilling to, to have that oral response. And I love reading in crowds when they actually respond like, mm. yeah. and it's like, yes, give me the ooms. I came up through a black, a black church. I know what this means to have a reciprocal relationship with an audience. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's, it's a release sometimes when I can let those go. Um, and it's in the, it's an even better feeling when they find a home and someone, you know, comes up and wants to hug again, pre pandemic, um, or talk a little bit more about a poem and I can see that it's moved them. And I'm just like thankful that I didn't have to go through this for no reason. You know what I mean? It's like, I went through this pain. So you, you could have this catharsis too. So you could have this healing moment and move on. So in a sense, the place where you read is your sanctuary where you can find freedom? Yes. Yes, very much so. Very well said. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no. <Very well> yes. <laughs> so your first collection is called Haint. And that makes me think of Gullah Geechee communities. It makes me think of Pearl Cleage. Um, I think... The one of the books, I cannot remember which, where she talks about the door being painted blue and it's it's the haint blue to keep the haints away. Mm-hmm. Tell me about haints and oh. why that name and just everything about the writing process. And then we'll get into the publishing part of the interview. Well, let's see. Haint was is a word that my aunt would call me. Um, my aunt is like, she's six feet tall. She used to be a model. She was an airline stewardess. For a long time so she traveled the world right and she would always call me a haint <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious uh because I was a little little thick you know just a little skinny like really twig skinny child who was not doing anything 
I was always under my grandparents and always under my parents and aunts and uncles and never getting out. I did not party, did not do any of that to college. Um, so I was such a good girl. And so it's funny to be called a hate. And but at the same time, um, I was really into the paranormal. I was trying to do astral projections by sixth grade. I was reading all these books on it. I'd learned how to read poems. It was a whole thing for me. Um, you know, I was ready for my powers to come in. I was ready for my origin story. Um, and it ne- never happened. Um, so I, but in the end, it's like a hate just became all these poems, all these stories that I couldn't hold on to anymore. I had to exercise the demon of them. I had to exercise them. And so I did that by writing. And so it's always a funny thing because depending on the audience, I ask people if they know what a hate is. And if I'm in the north, most people don't. But you know, further on down south, that, exactly. that Mason Dixon line, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, yes, you know. So, what's what are some of the topics that you covered in, in Hank? You keep saying you had to exercise those demons and those traumas, without being super specific and putting you on the spot. What are some of the things that you had to get rid of and get out of you to to seek your own healing? Well, there's a bop in there about cutting. When I was younger and my parents divorced, that had a huge impact on me. Because like I said, I wasn't a kid out running the streets. I didn't have a huge friend circle. My family, my nuclear family was my was my world. And this was a huge fissure that broke it all up. And so I began to cut myself. And that was my way of trying to exert control over what seemed like I couldn't control. And so I have a poem about that. Um, and about that trauma. I have a poem about the many years of infertility. My husband and I experienced eight years. We were married for eight years before we had our first child. And so initially when we first started, things just were not happening. And that was just throwing me for a loop because you spend so much of your teen, like hearing that you can't do anything because you'll get pregnant. And, and for me who wanted to go to college, I was like, no, 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 no kids, no kids, no kids. And so now when I'm finally in that point where I can have the kids, I have the kid, I mean, I have the house, I have the job, I have the husband and no kid. And it was just like, what in the world? So there are poems about that. And then I found, I found myself like looking at that dark side and realizing that there are so many women who've gone down this path of wanting a child and have taken children from other women. And so I started doing all this research on women who cut other women's bellies and literally took their children. And so I, I begin to realize that I understood a little bit of that. And I've always been attracted to the dark side, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can call it the Scorpio in me, whatever, but <laughs> doesn't mean I'm going to go that way. I put salt on the slug once and cry, but like, you know, <laughs> but I, but I've, I've always been attracted. Like how can people just commit evil and like, and feel like they can just do this. Um, so it allowed me to go that way. So that was something I had to exercise, like getting rid of that that angst, that anger, that frustration of wanting life and couldn't and not being able to have it. Um, and just also poems that dealt with me learning to love myself, learning to love my hair, learning to love my skin. Um, and that's, you know, so those are some of the poems I had to exercise, how to deal with colorism in the Black community, how to deal with that. And and just for the audience note, Terry is a beautiful brown-skinned woman with these sister locks and is giving me all the life right now in this <laughs> podcast interview. So no, you are beautiful. 
Well, thank you. You're so very welcome. Uh, wow. Um, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but you kind of went there. So here we go. I am pregnant right now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know when this interview was going to air. It might be after I deliver, but like you talking about that and, and it, it, it's a very peculiar place to, to want to have a child, to be with child and then to deliver. And I even felt that when you were talking about letdown, like I nursed my son, I think for 18 months, I was working full time as a television news producer, working mornings. I would leave in like 1 a.m. and nurse him and then have to and then be at work all morning, do my show at 8 a.m. I'd pump and then I once I left my shift, go pick him up and there would be milk. But he, then he didn't want the bottle. It was mm-hmm. like like he'd be at the babysitter all day and just would not take the bottles like, no, my mom is coming. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get it from the source. I'm gonna get it from the source. I'm like he, like he would have the bottle and just turn it upside down. Yes. So, it's for you to talk about all those things and just the, the experiences of womanhood and black womanhood and motherhood. I feel like those topics aren't really broached a lot in any way, shape, or form. Be it novels fiction um, non-fiction poetry it's it's always like this big secret so what has been the response from your audience when you have these poems and they read these poems and they feel seen I tell you the one act the poem letdown that I mentioned earlier normally gets a huge response from women and and, and it's funny because it gets the response from women across the board like regardless of ethnicity I've had women say okay I know that feeling. And it's like, so who's been writing about the working mom, right? Because that needs to be a thing too. We can't all write about going off to Tuscany um, because I've never had that happen to me. <laughs> and yes, there are beautiful poems about the rolling hills and I'm I'm here for those poems, but I'm also here for poems that talk about, this was hard. My kid threw up on my outfit and then I still had to change and go to work. And what do I do with that? With all these emotions running around. And so I'm here to write that life. Because I know that life inside and out. And I'm here to sing the songs for Black women who haven't had a chorus. So that's 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 what I'm here for. Because I'm always going to stand Black women. Because I am a Black woman. I'm one of three sisters. You know, so, so I know. I know how little love we get. And I'm here to give us all the love. Can we and, go back to singing the songs for Black women who never had a chorus? That's a poet right there. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, that, I felt that. Um, randomly, have you seen this movie on Netflix? It's with uh, Jill Scott and Azalea Banks. I think it's called like Beats, Rhyme, and Love or something like that. I have not, but, but I see that. In the movie, Jill Scott is a poetry teacher at a, a college and Azalea Banks is a student. You know, she's also a rapper. So she's threading the line between rapping and learning what a poem is. But at one point, Jill Scott delivers this poem in the movie. And I believe the last line is, I always lose things like children. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you had seen it because of what you're talking about. I was like, I think you would like that movie. Very random. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I I appreciate it because I'm always trying to, you know, I wake up in the morning and I'm watching something while I work out. So I'm like, yes, let's add it to the list. Here's another thing. I'm going to find out all the things today. So, yeah, I look for it. And so going back to your books, after you wrote Haint, what was your process of getting it published? 
through Gival Press. Am I saying yeah. that right? Yeah, Javal Press. Javal Press. Javal, it was, okay. It was storybook, if I can be honest, because I had the book. Um, it was about a third of it was from my thesis um, because I did that MFA as I work full time producing. <laughs> I do not advise people to do that. Um, and and so, but then I'd written all these other poems and I'd gotten a chance to do residencies, um, like three after my last child was born, three and he was three and I could then go and we weren't nursing anymore. I could like roll. And so it just, I knew I had this book together. I was beginning to start to like push it out a little bit. And then the publisher approached me at a reading. It was like, I heard you had a manuscript. Um, let's talk. And I was like, does this happen? Like, and I had the book out in, in, in contest and I was like, what do I do? And my friends were like, well, you have one person right there saying they're going to publish your book. So I talked to other people on the press and was like, okay, I like this. And Cheval Press has been great. Robert uh, Guyron has been awesome as, a, as just as the publisher and his support um, and his willingness to put the book out there for prizes. And that's how it got the Ohio Anna in 2017 as he put it out there. So it was kind of storybook. Um, and then, like I said, and then it came out and then my husband's first book came out months apart. So we did a little tour and went to Ireland and, <laughs> and read, read poems all over Ireland. It was awesome. Um, oh, that's beautiful. So I'm assuming Javal Press is like a small independent press, correct? Yes. Yes. In the, in the, in the Virginia, in Virginia. Yes. Okay. And so it's not every day that you hear about oh the publisher approached me <laughs> right right that's what was so wild I was like really like okay um so I took that opportunity and ran with it Why and not? then it was three then your latest book um a more perfect human came out in 2021 correct right it, it'd be out um February yes February 7th okay and- so it's on its way out so what was the process between book one and book two? Because you've gone with a different publisher for this one. Right, right. Well, with, with book two, um, it came it came about a lot faster than book one. Um, all of a sudden, uh, I was getting poems and journals um, that were new poems. And I was realizing, okay, I'm getting enough published that this is truly a second book. Uh, and I knew that there were some things I wanted to kind of explore and I needed a residency or time away um, to, to write. It's, I know that there are people and I, I admire Lucille Clifton. She's my number one poet of all time. And I knew she had six kids and she was able to get up and write, but I could not do it. Um, I need to get away from the small people that I've created uh, just to mentally be free of them because if they're around, there's a part of my head that's always going to be mommy. Like, what do you need? How can I help you? Why are you beating your sister? Um, you know, like these are things that need to be discussed. Um, so, and so, yeah, I knew that this was coming along. I knew that this had gotten the poems and it had gotten published in places that I had dream publications and I'd hit some of those mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to do with myself with some of those. Like, oh my gosh, Poetry Ireland Review is going to take a poem. <laughs> you know, Ten House took a poem. Oh my gosh. I have poems on the Academy of American Poets. Like, and so I knew I had to, I, I wanted to go with, I wanted to see what would happen if I put the book out there for a contest. So I did, once I thought it was done, I did a whole slew of contests. And within three, no, what, five months, 
I, I had a hit. Oh, you know, I, I got a call from Kathy Fagan, and that was that. It won the the wheeler, you know, it won the prize. So I was like, okay. And the publishers awesome. approach you. Yeah. That is awesome. <laughs> so what are the themes that you'd cover in a more perfect union? Oh, um, a lot of things. Like I made nine goddesses. That was important. Nine and nine had a lot of symbolism for me. Um, I'm a huge comic book fan. So I grew up on DC and Marvel. So the idea of goddesses and beings with superpowers is something very natural to me. And I, I just wanted to explore um, realms and worlds that don't get talked about, like the goddess of lust, like the goddess of parenting, you know, like the goddess of stars, like the goddess of cleaning. I really wanted to exalt cleaning because I know what it's like to get into that, that <laughs> feeling of, it's almost like a little bit of an ecstatic moment with cleaning where you're scrubbing so hard and you notice things come super clean when you're done and you know this dirt had better not come back and you know it just <laughs> like like there's that energy and so yeah I knew I wanted to go there I knew that there were poems there were songs I'm always in love with music I'm always listening to music I'm always diving into a world of music and trying to figure out the notes and the colors and the stories that are involved in the songs so I knew there were poems for that then I also knew I began to write these poems about being a mother, about um, about going to Freak Meek, about what that was like and how that was the first thought in my head when I had my daughter. Oh, like, <laughs> like, oh, crap. Now I know. I, will, I hope she doesn't do that to me. Uh, and yeah, and, and also, but the other thrust of it was the Constitution. I was a congressional page when I was 16. So I came to live in D.C., and work on the house floor and go to school at the Library of Congress for six months with these incredibly privileged kids from across the country. And I had, I've had this intimate relationship I felt in my mind and my heart with the Constitution ever since I learned that experience as a page. But then I studied international affairs with the emphasis on African politics when I was in graduate school before the MFA. And so I I had to learn a lot of hard truths about America then and marry it with what I knew, the idealism I had as a 16-year-old, and then marry it also with the realism of what I could look at as now, as a mom, as a Black mother, as an aware Black woman in this mm -hmm. country. And so there are poems that are just beginning to have this conversation with the Constitution. Um, and that's where the title came from, like those last, like, that last section, I'm, I'm really starting to think a lot more. And I was reading the Constitution, rereading it again, and just thinking a lot more about ways in which this country has utterly failed Black women from the beginning. And and so that's, that's where I'm going, and that's where it kind of ended up. Okay, so now we have to hear some poems from this collection, A More Perfect Union. I'm going to read the description while you find what you want to read, and then it'll be all on you. Okay. So, a More Perfect Union. In the tender, sensual, embracing poems of A More Perfect Union, Terry Ellen Cross Davis reclaims the experience of living and mothering while Black in contemporary America, centering Black women's pleasure by wresting it away from the relentless commodification of the white gaze. Cross Davis deploys stunning emotional range to uplift the mundane, interrogate the status quo, and ultimately create her own goddesses. Parenting, lust, household chores, all are fair game for Cross Davis's gimlet, gimlet eye. 
whether honoring her grief for Prince's passing while examining his role in midwifing her sexual awakening or contemplating travel and the gamble of being Black across the wide world, these poems tirelessly seek a path out of the labyrinth to hope. Terry Cross Davis, take it away. Okay. So I wanted to read A Black Woman Gets a Window Seat on Aer Lingus. I've talked a lot about going to Ireland and what that process has meant to me. And I love Ireland. I love the fact that it's a, it's a country and a culture that just exalts poets. And I wish that for every country. I know some do, um, but just not America. But it's also a country that is predominantly white. Um, there are Black people there. There are other people there. But um, being there can be an isolating experience a little bit if you're a woman of color. But what does that mean when you're Black and you're an American? Yeah. So a Black woman gets a window seat on Aer Lingus, and Aer Lingus is the dominant um, airline to and from Ireland. Enough Ireland. For all your lush effusion of color, inside me blooms a masochistic loneliness. Give me the screws I know best. The policeman quick to test my yes sir as acidless. Trigger the Midwest. Never on the Bible school test was this. Crucifixion kills, not nails into feet or wrists, but the weight borne upon the breast. You suffocate slowly in your own flesh. As I return to the upright cross of the U.S., I breathe easier. I breathe less. Mm. And is it okay to share one more? Of course. Okay. No, I was gonna, I'm going to share a crescendo with you. Um, I know you have a phone, so I know this. So, crescendo. My son nests, pawing each pillow like a breast, fleshed out and so newly forgotten. I've spanked him once tonight. He takes turns laughing, then crying, defiant, then hungry. In his mouth, my name, all need. Pursed lips plead, mommy, and I am guilty of the same sin. I miss his curled and tucked weight, embryo, the deepest root yanked clean. This is why babies are born crying into this world. Having held fast is such an intimate tether, who willingly would let go again. But today, another white cop walked free. Another black body was still on the ground, not indicted, undoubtedly the future outcome. Four years ago, I crossed labor's red sea of pain to birth a boy. No doctor hit his backside. Now I raise my hand to complete an act older than me, breaking the black back of the boy to make a man who can survive in America. Mm. Mommy, he calls me, and my teeth threaten to weep old milk at our stasis. Both of us needing the succor of sleep, both of us fighting, him to keep me near, me punishing him to be left alone. He crawls into my lap, his heart is three, his body a lanky four. I cover him with a blanket too thin to mean it. We rock on the edge of his bed, listening to the symphony's fourth movement, the crescendo sweep full of tension, violin strings singing, I think. Mozart must have known something of loving with such a tender fear that it breaks you open like a welt that bleeds the hill. Tonight, I give up, cuddling this boy so full of belief in himself, 
I'm too tired with love to beat it out of me. So that's that's two poems from a more person. Yeah. Um I like how crescendo centers mothering and especially what it means to mother a black son. Because you're trying to prepare him for a world that is going to tear him down. And I don't know if you watch Lovecraft Country, but the whole dialogue around, let me do it to you first, because I'm going to do it out of love before they do it to you out there. And it's going to be out of hate and spite and might even cost your life. That is that is a, a very, very real dichotomy that I don't think in even in this age of Black Lives Matter is is centered enough. I wrote, I have a spoken word collection out. So I guess it's a poetry collection, but I have this spoken word piece that is pretty popular in my community called Mothers of Sorrow, where it's like, you know, we always talk about the victim, but I always wonder about their mothers. And mm. so that, that, that piece was kind of like my ode to all of the mothers of the children who have been slain. Yeah, there's my husband and I had a lot of conversation about just um, how we would raise our children. Um, And he came from, he's biracial, he was never spanked. I was spanked. I had to pick out the belt, I had to get the whip, I had to get the, you know, the piece of the willow tree and strip it of his branches, you know, of his leaves and and get my, the back of my legs, you know, (laughs) torn up. And so we had to really figure out how, what we were gonna do. What was the purpose of spanking? And that's really what it came down to. It was like, you know, I was rereading Richard Wright's Black Boy and he does the thing where he kind of sets the curtains on fire and the house is on fire and everybody's looking for him. And when they find him later and he gets whooped so bad, he almost dies. You're like, well, what is the purpose then? Why are we hitting our children? But yet, other people don't hit their kids, but the other people can not hit their kids and their kids can wild out and not get shot by the cops either. So it just, it was a deeper conversation that I realized we needed to have. Um, and we had just finished reading Ta-Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me, and I both. And so we were just, and, and I know Ta-Nehisi Coates comes to this realization that he's not going to spend. And so, and it just, it's a conversation. It's an ongoing one in the Black community, because I think every Black parents who would just fall over if they found out that we weren't like spanking our kids. And then <laughs> at the same time, you know, it's like it, to other people that might mean like it's an abuse to spank them. And I'm like, but what's, who's really the abuser here? Mm-hmm. Is it, are we acting out trauma that we've gotten used to in order to survive in this country? Or is it, we're trying to exert control over, over a circumstance that we don't control? It's just so many questions. So I had to write that poem. What does your husband think of your work? Does he read all of your poems and all of your books? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's like my first reader. The minute I have something that I think is a kernel of a thing, he knows about it. And I'll read it to him. And he's. I have to thank him because he's pushed me for so long. Like, that's great. But Terry, mm-hmm. push a little bit more. I think you need to keep writing past the moment. Keep writing. He's an English teacher, right? Uh. <laughs> so that's great too, because I'm horrible at grammar. Um, and <laughs> in-house editor, come on. 
I know, right? <laughs> I, oh, I can't tell you how many times it's come in handy. Like, baby, can you read over this email real quick? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it just but he knows all these poems he knows the moment they happen he knows the lines and he's he's always there to support and i just i I, you know it's just something it gives me all kinds of feelings oh so you are fully living out this literary life as a poet you have the work at the library your work with your 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 brunch collective have you how do you see your creative pursuits now? Have you embraced them? Do you still feel like you have further to go and further to push? Like, what's next? Oh, there's always going to be further to go and further to push. There's so much that I'm just always just intellectually and emotionally stimulated by. Um, there's so much I'm curious about that I want to learn more and see what that what impact that has on my writing. Um, I I feel more empowered than ever to seek seek out subjects and know that I can kind of treat them with a deft hand. Like I can come at this. I do have some skill now. Mm. Um, Yeah. You know, so let me see what I can do and what my voice looks like when it's on this topic. Um, So there's so much more that I want to explore. I mean, I, I feel like I just touched the surface of the constitution and for as much as that document is revered as this living text, I want to skin it. I want to see the bones. I want to see the marrow. I want it to bleed. I want it to know how I've lived. You know, I, I need it to know. I need that language to, to reflect me and reflect this pain that it hasn't. Do you feel that even more so now in the wake of the insurrection? Yes. Because to see people on the floor of a place I worked and I held such reverence, and to see them treat it like a like a bathroom in so many cases. Mm. Yeah. Nah, people think they know, but they don't know. They don't know. They don't know what it means to share power because even just the idea of sharing power seems like an injustice. They don't know. This country is going through so much right now. And I feel like that in many ways, I can I'll say specifically, I feel like black women can tell this country about itself in so many ways. How many times have we been made to clean up the mess? And I'm sick of cleaning up the mess. I was going to say, and you will be there to document it from the perspective of Black women. We're constantly saving the country, delivering elections. And and all of the things. And for lack of better words, getting shitted on in the process of doing so. Hello. Hello. You know, barely can barely be a hashtag, you know, or have it last long or have people not buy R. Kelly's albums. You know, like there are things that need to happen here and the ways in which Black women need to be centered within our own community. I think, and that's part of what BLBC is about, is we center ourselves. We love up on ourselves because we recognize that you're not going to get it from everybody. They're not going to see us as beautiful. They're not going to see our pain as happening. So yeah, there's so much more to come at this world with. And my knives are sharp at this moment. Yes, come on, sharp knives. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go into a speed round before we get to our last question. So um, what is your favorite book? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, I often say uh, Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison, because it just reminds me of home. What is your favorite movie? You know, someone else asked me that. I don't know that I have one right now. There are some movies I go back to over and over again. Um, one of which is um, 
Stoker, oddly enough, because I love the exploration of evil. And what is evil? Um, <laughs> there go that Scorpio again. That dark side. I know. It's just there. It's just there. So, I, but I don't know that I have a favorite favorite. There are many that I can go back to. Who is your favorite author? Uh, well, poet Lucille Clifton. We'll just say. Yeah. And what is your favorite TV show? Oh, I don't know. Right now, I really love A Discovery of Witches because I read the whole series. Um, so I'm really excited. And, and oddly enough, um, the actor in Discovery, which is also the actor in Stoker. Um, so I think I just have to have a conversation with myself about him. Um, <laughs> and, like, and yeah, so I don't know that I have a favorite, favorite show. Uh, I have to think really hard about that. I, I feel like favorites exist for a certain period of time as a reflection of who I am and what I like. Mm-hmm. Right? And then it's rare for anything to stay consistent for me for that long, except Prince. I mean, I'm always going to love Prince. Yeah, I, I see the, the nice poster in the background. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, name one poet you think doesn't get enough credit for their for their contribution to the craft. Um, I could say Lucille Clifton, but I feel like everybody's starting to give Lucille a little bit more of her flowers, um, overdue in my mind. Um, I've been, I don't know, like, Evan Bolin is a poet, I realized that I, she had such an impact on my career, and I don't think I ever had a chance to really tell her, tell her. Um, so there's that, um, there are a lot of Irish poets I really love, I love Eamon Grennan and how he begins a poem and how he ends a poem. Um, John Burnside is a Scottish boy um, whose work I really love. Uh, but I feel like all the other poets who I adore, you know, like, and writers who I adore, like, you know, Audre Lorde and I and Lisa Clifton, Rita Dove, um, Linda Patton is another one. I feel like they are getting some attention. So I guess, you know, and I thought Linda Patton in that, like, I think she needs even more attention. I think she does so many incredible things and I love how she's a, a quiet and strong, steely poet of domesticity. Mm-hmm. And it's like people just overlook what it means to be the center focus. Because that's what a mom is and a wife is. Like we're the center. Without us, it just doesn't run. You know? <laughs> so yeah. we're the center and we need more attention being the center. Describe your perfect day. Ooh. <laughs> the fan of me was like, Hosier calls me like, Terry, let's work on a song together. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if that's it that's it that's not that's not a bad day that's a great day <laughs> that would be a great day <laughs> oh, oh my husband might not think it's a great day but i would think it's a great day uh, <laughs> um you know i i guess the, a great day is is it's a combination thing it would be having the time to have a great deep conversation with my son he's really a deep thinker he actually sat down and told me the other day, he was like, I don't know if I like this country. I was like, dude, you ain't saying nothing but a word. Um, <laughs> Join the ancestors. Exactly. <laughs> they, they, are, they are speaking through you, son. Just open up and be, just let, allow it to happen. Um, so yeah, a great day would be having a great combo with my son, um, seeing artwork, my, my daughter doing some artwork, seeing that, my husband writing a poem, me writing a poem, and us coming together and just loving up on each other. Mm. If you were an element, which one would you be? Ooh, that's a very good question. Um, how to make that a quick answer. 
I don't know, man. I feel like maybe Earth, because all things are possible. Hmm. Yeah, Gaia. Yes. Let's bring in the gods. Gaia. Yes. I can feed Earth. And what sound is most like you? Hmm. Maybe that sound right there. The hmm. Because it resonates and it extends itself and it's full of warmth and reflection and response. So, yeah, that's it. All right. And my final question for uh, our interview today. Um, So you have dedicated your life, really, at this point to to poetry and amplifying the stories of Black women through your poetry. When you're dead and gone, what would you like the next generation of Black women poets to write about you? Oh, my gosh. That's a great question. I don't... Maybe that I was fearless and maybe that they too could take that mantle up and and you know um I was thinking about the lines the questions Audre Lorde asks you as a writer you know what are the things you fear what are the things you're not writing about and and maybe maybe they would say well she was fearless she wrote about these things she wrote about her miscarriage she wrote about the infertility she wrote about um you know, the the cutting, all these things. She wrote about the fear she had of of being a black mother and, and creating small black people who in a country that seems to treat us like cannon fodder. Like so I want them to pick up that fearless that fearless gene, that fearless like line and, and explore it and not and not be afraid to write to their fear and to exercise their fear and not let it hold them down anymore. I think that would be it. Thank you, Terry, for joining me today on Black and Published. Oh, thank you so much, Nikita, and congratulations on the (laughs) ending life. (laughs) You know, you got to keep us going, keep us strong, keep us healthy. Big thank you to Terry for being here on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out Terry's latest poetry collection, A More Perfect Union, out now, right now, from Mad Creek Books. And if you're not following Terry, follow her on the socials. She's at cross underscore Davis on Twitter and at Haint underscore poet on Instagram. That's H-A-I-N-T underscore poet on Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you liked this episode and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. While you're there, you can also leave us a rating, a review, a comment. Let us know who you want to hear on the show next. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter. That's B-L-K and Published. And to keep up with me, head to newrights.com. N-E-W-W-R-I-T-E-S dot com. Or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show for the week. I'll holla at y'all next time. Peace.